So Lord, we do come into your sanctuary. We are your worshipers. Men, women, children, all of us gathered together as one, following your spirit, attempting to be your church, and moving forward to change the world. May we know you, may we love you, may we worship you with all that we have and all that we are. In the name of Jesus, and we all said, amen. Well, we've been working through the Lord's Prayer. And I mean, line by line, pretty much thought by thought, prayer by prayer, we've been going along. And we come then uh, to what I believe, in my opinion, is the most confusing petition of the entire prayer. And um, so we'll take a look here in just a second. But, uh, and I gave you a half sheet of paper with a whole lot of stuff. It was just more than to even put on the screens. And I wanted you to be able to sit there and kind of mull it over and chew on it and compare various lines, especially that line that we're talking about today on uh, do not bring us to a time of trial. But, um, you know, the Lord's Prayer, one of the reasons for wanting to kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on this thing is that we could all just fall into a rote memory. We all stand up, we do it together. That has a really cool function of being together, but it also tends to sort of empty it of any moment to pause and think about it, right? Because we're all doing it together. You don't really get to mull it over and digest it. So um, one function competes against another. So to take this sort of long look at the Lord's Prayer, I think is important. So we are not just uh, uttering empty, vain nonsense. Yes. So um, anyway, so let's dig into it here. So, you know, the Lord's Prayer shows up in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And so here we have Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the one that we are all most familiar with, whether we know it or not. And every time you see on your piece of paper, NRSV, that's the New Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, newer than the Revised Standard Version. <laughs> so, um, and lo and behold, the New Revised Standard Version also now added a UE to the end of it. Like, come on, man, I was just getting used to the NRSV. And, and it stands for updated edition, new revised standard version, updated edition. Like, okay, so this is actually the updated edition. Uh-huh. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Okay, do not, all right, so now we go to Luke chapter 11, also quoting Jesus. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Okay, all good. Then we go to the Book of Common Prayer, BCP, Book of Common Prayer, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian, been around forever. That's really the one we do on Sunday mornings is from that, okay? Uh, so it'll follow the traditional like Catholic Anglican versions of it. And Book of Common Prayer, Rite 1, which is the old kind of King Jamesy sort of sounding one, the old English-ish, if I put enough E's on there, it sounds old, um, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then, right two, Book of Common Prayer, right two, gets updated. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. So you should be doing a little chin scratching right now, examining all four of those, especially the Book of Common Prayer, right one, about lead us not into temptation. Clearly, translators and churches have struggled with the suggestion that God is leading us into temptation. Okay? That's why I'm saying this is one of the most confusing lines in the prayer. Bible scholar Wesley Hill 
quotes Pope Francis, and Pope Francis said, commented, it's not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls. It's not God pushing me into temptation. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you get up immediately. It's Satan who leads you into temptation. That's his department. Yeah. The letter of James in the New Testament rules out God tempting us in no uncertain terms. Right? Here it is. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 11. No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. One is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. James chapter 1. Only strange uh, and weird human beings find God as some sort of sicko, pleasure, tempting humans, you know, just so he can, like, sit around and be evil, you know, or something like that and torture people. Um, like God's doing, tempting you out of fun and meanness or whatever. Instead, what we really have, of course, theologically being correct, is that we have a God in Christ hanging on a cross who rescues, rescues us from our own sin. That's right. That's the right theology. God hangs on the cross to rescue us from sin. Why in the world would he ever want to tempt us with sin? Right? So translators then have done a better job to say, do not, uh, have done better to say, do not bring us to a time of trial rather than the old King James sounding version of, and lead us not into temptation. And they've not really violated the original text in doing so. Of course, let's now make some distinctions. God may not tempt us, but God certainly will test us. There ought to be the chin noddings at this moment. Of course, God testing people is nothing new. The Bible is full of God testing people. God tests Abraham right there in Genesis. One of the very first, if not the biggest, most historic, famous test there is. Here it is. I got it right there in front of you on your piece of paper. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham! And Abraham says, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. This is not a temptation. This is a test. Okay. Isaac is spared the knife, but his father's heart is put through a fiery furnace of transformation. It's very, very important, especially important to the Jewish people. To get the story right, Abraham is tested and makes it through the refiner's fire. God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know, like God, you know, just discovered something. So, you know, you kind of wink, wink like the story, right? Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham, of course, becomes the father of a great nation. This is the testing to see, like, will you be? The, the patriarch of the Jews. Will you be those people? Will you be Abraham? You know? Whatever else the petition, lead us not in temptation, means when we pray the prayer, 
the Lord's Prayer, it cannot mean that God will spare us from the searing heat of the refiner's fire, to quote Wesley Hill's assessment. We are not spared from testing everyone or from trial. What about us today? Can we pray the psalmist's prayer like Psalm 26? Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and mind. Psalm 26, verse 2. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and mind. You want to pray that prayer? Is that what you woke up this morning saying? God, prove me. Test me. You are unique in the room if you got up this morning and prayed that. Everybody else is like, God, I want to make it through this day easy. No problems today. Okay, God, no test, no trial, no nothing. I believe our modern proclivity to place ourselves on very tall pedestals where uh, we would rather blame God for bringing us trials rather than see ourselves as sinners in need of refinement and, and forgiveness, we would rather do that. We think awfully highly of ourselves, and we don't like being blamed or tested or anything else. We moderns do not tolerate pain very well, especially these days, it seems like. And if uh, scholars N.T. Wright and Tracy McKenzie, our guest speaker from a couple of weeks ago, if they have anything to say about it, we are fallen people, and we are challenged by the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, and we have had a very, very hard time submitting to our new citizenship in that heaven, and we'd rather sit around and blame God for all the bad stuff that happens in our lives. And say, like, sinner? I'm not a sinner. Our prayer should be, save us from the trials we fallen sinners have put ourselves through because we are stubborn as a mule and we don't like change or challenge. That's the honest prayer, if we'd all admit it. Save us from ourselves, Lord. That should be our prayer. So exactly then, exactly then, what, what does the Lord's prayer mean when we pray, save us from the time of trial? What does it really, really mean? We find our best clue with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. You know, at the beginning of his ministry. Comes up out of the baptismal water, like today. And Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan. And immediately he goes where? He goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he is tempted. He is tested. Now, don't miss the parallel here. Because the Hebrew people leaving Pharaoh after 430 years of slavery go to the Red Sea. The Red Sea parts. They move out through the Red Sea and go directly to the Holy Land. No, no, they do not go directly to the Holy Land. A three-week journey, if you would have gone direct, walking, it's just a three-week journey. But instead, they spend 40 years in the wilderness being, well, regaining their identity being tested, being tempted, being tried, tried, sinning boldly. And Jesus comes out of the Jordan River, and he goes immediately into the wilderness. Immediately into the wilderness. So the Spirit, by the way, leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit did not tempt him. The devil did, Matthew chapter 4, verse 11. 
So notice two things. God does not prevent Jesus from facing temptation. God did not prevent Jesus from facing temptation. Second, God is not the one doing the tempting. Satan is. And Jesus is making decisions about whether or not he's going to fall into the temptation. Whatever temptation God allows us to endure, we must know the temptation is not punitive, not a punishment. You're not being tempted as a punishment. Instead, temptation and trial is meant to transform us, to change us. Not punishment, but transformation. That's what we pray. Lord, transform me. Change me into the kind of Christ follower I always wanted to be. Now, you must be prepared if you pray that prayer, which I believe we all pray. God, make me into the kind of Christian man or woman that I want to be. Really? Are you prepared for that? Like the legendary Dallas Cowboys football coach, Tom Landry, who once said, my job is to make you men into the, make you do you, you men to do the things you don't want to do so you can become the football players you always wanted to be. Trials make us awesome. We just don't like it. What exactly were Jesus' temptations in the wilderness? Well, according to Henry Nouwen, uh, one of our favorite authors around here, according to Henry Nouwen, Satan offers up three, three compulsions, right? It's interesting that Nouwen calls them compulsions, like something you can't control. Irresistible sin, you know, that we all have. Including, according to now, and Jesus is being tempted by him. The first compulsion was to be relevant, Nowen says. That is, turn these stones into bread. Be relevant. Like, be useful. Do something practical. Be relevant to the world. Feed others. Feed yourself. Do something really, really useful. That's a temptation. Second, be spectacular, Henry Nouwen says. That is, throw yourself down, and the angels will guard you, thousands of angels, and it'll look awesome on TikTok. I mean, it will be awesome. You're going to look great when all these angels show up, and you will look so incredible. Be spectacular. Third, be powerful. I will give you all the kingdoms that you see and everyone will bow down and worship you. Satan says to Jesus. Those are the three compulsions, the things pulling on us to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful. They're there every day for every one of us. The wilderness is always a place of temptation, you know. It's always the place. The wilderness is always testing and, and the proving ground. The Exodus, the Hebrews, Elijah in his cave waiting for the still small voice of God. They're always off out far somewhere, far, far away, out in the sticks, out in the woods, in a cave, behind a rock, down by a river. They're somewhere, and they're being tempted. They face their temptations, you know. And um, you and me, when we take time to go make retreat at a monastery 
or even just take a Saturday morning and an extended time of prayer and silence. Make yourself a mini retreat or whatever you want to call it. Quiet time. Surrender time. What you get when you spend time alone in solitude, silence, fasting, whatever it might be. What you get is testing. You usually get tested. You get faced then. The testing begins with what is it that you want? What is your desire? What do you need? That's the beginning of retreat right there. Is what you desire good and right? Is it good for you? Or is it counterproductive? I mean, are you single and you do anything to find love? Anything? You know? Are you a parent and you want your child to turn out perfect just the way you designed them? So your friends will be impressed with your parenting skills. Why do you want to change jobs? Why do you want to move? Who are you trying to be, honestly? All this stuff comes up in the wilderness. Solitude is the furnace of transformation, Henry Nouwen says. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. You get alone, you get smelted. Perhaps it's time to take off for the wilderness right here in the middle of summer. Spend some time and money at the feet of Jesus. I mean, really pray the Lord's Prayer. Father, save me from the time of trial. Save me from myself. Deliver me. Let's examine me. Let's take a deep look inside and see where I am and the questions I'm asking that I don't even know I'm asking. Over the years, I've led many, many people on solitude retreat, and I always begin with the same message for the brand new retreatants, really even that very first night. You you think you've come here to recharge your batteries and, and take a breather? So come Monday morning, you can plunge yourself right back into the rat race of life and just go back to what you were doing, unchanged. You just wanted a break. You wanted a vacation. You didn't really want to be transformed. There's a big difference between taking a break, which is okay, and being transformed by Jesus. In solitude and silence, you will rest, of course, because you're tired and you need a break. You need a nap. Yeah? Some of you are taking one right now. Uh, But then you also need to be recreated. You need to be, you need rest, but you also need to be recreated. I don't mean recreate, like go bowling or something like that. I mean recreate. Something, you need a new voice in your life. You need something to breathe into you. Something to break up the fallow ground. You need to be plowed, you know. Turned over. You need a new voice, especially in one's Christian life where you've just done the same thing over and over and you start thinking like, man, if I sing this song again, I'm just going to rent my robes. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's time if you're open for it. You need a new voice. The voice that got you here will not get you there. The voice that got you here will not get you there. And it's time to sit at the feet of Jesus all anew. And your third thing, 
is that you need to wrestle. Rest, recreate, and wrestle. Yes, we're in Missouri, and I can say wrestle. You know what I mean? And you should be embarrassed that you know what I mean. But you need to wrestle with God. You need to wrestle. Like Jacob, who wrestles all night with God. God? Is it God? Who is that? It's God. Wrestles all night with God, all the way until the early morning. And Jacob walks away with two things, doesn't he? Two things. First, Jacob is given a new identity. You will no longer be known as Jacob, but you will now be known as Israel. That's where Israel comes from. And Israel means one who wrestles with God. And the Jews have been wrestling with God ever since. He becomes Israel. Second thing Jacob gets is he gets his hip put out of joint from wrestling with God. And he limps the rest of his life. And you're like, thank you? May I have another? He gets a new name, a brand new identity, but he also gets a limp. This is what happens when you wrestle with God. You think you'll fare, fare better than Jacob? I don't think so. Walk enough miles following Jesus and you too will gain a new identity. You will become a brand new, different, unique person. You will become Christ-like. You will become a compassionate person. You will become a tolerant person, a patient person. You will take on the fruit of the Spirit. You'll take all that on. People will think you're an incredible human being and you won't care. And that will be the best part of the whole thing. And you will also get a limp. Or at least begin to see the limp that you already have. You'll find your limp. So just let me mansplain this here for a moment for my own sake. You get this new identity. Great. You are now a child of God. You are loved more than you love yourself. You realize that God loves you and there's nothing you can do. You are held super tight in the hand of Jesus. You are loved more than you love yourself. You, you are not your poor self-image. You and I are worthy of Jesus dying on a cross for us. And you soak that up and see what it does for all your compulsions in your life, like being helpful and awesome and influential. But you'll also have a limp. And your limp may be your bad habits and your addictions. Your limp may be your own mouth, which you can't keep shut or you never open when you should. Your limp may be your compulsion to be right all the time. How's your anger these days? There's a limp. Is it just there all the time, just simmering under a nice smile? You'll have to fight that limp your whole life. And wake up like I do and say, what are you so angry about? Really? Just angry at everything? Is no one out here driving perfect? Just you? Weird. Learn to smirk at yourself. You need a divine smirk. You need to make fun of yourself. Like, really angry so much, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, that person, like, what? They changed lanes just a little too close to you? And now you're all like, oh. Like, really? Like, you need to get over yourself now. Stop it. You begin to laugh at yourself and you drag that limp around. 
That's how you deal with the limb. Is your own smirk at yourself. That says, you silly fool. Who just thought you were just all that, didn't you? You're just another human on the planet that God loves. And that's all you need. To live the Christian life is to live the examined life. It's one of the main things that makes Christians different. This furnace of transformation that you're constantly being examined by God, by the Holy Spirit, by yourself. Comparing yourself to Jesus, following Jesus, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following Jesus, working on yourself. It is a lifelong process. And that's what makes Christians spectacular and unknown. To live the Christian life is to live an examined life. And as G.K. Chesterton said over 100 years ago, he said, Christianity, so digest this one, that's why I put it on your piece of paper. He said, Christianity has not been so much tried and been found wanting as it's been found difficult and left untried. Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it's been found difficult and left untried. Ain't that the truth? Father, do not bring us to a time of trial. Father, lead us not into temptation. Father, save us from a time of trial. Father, save me from my own self. This is how Jesus taught us how to pray. When we pray that prayer, all that's wrapped up in there. Right there. This is how Jesus taught us how to pray. All else is an unexamined life. Just splashing around in the shallow end of the pool. May we pray the Lord's Prayer with reckless abandon and fully understand who is teaching us how to pray and the kind of people we are supposed to be. And may each and every one of us gain a new identity and learn to smirk at our limp. Amen.